Hey everyone, welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Raven and I'm a third-year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Maya. Thanks Raven for the warm welcome. My name is Maya and I'm also a third-year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that the Airwave podcast is not meant for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. Welcome to Season 5. In this season, we'll be starting off with a two-part series on diabetes. In Part 1, we'll discuss end-organ complications of diabetes. In our next episode, we'll be discussing pharmacology and diabetic emergencies. Today, we'll be giving a quick introduction to diabetes mellitus and talk about some relevant perioperative anesthetic considerations. We'll go systematically by organ system and talk about cardiovascular, renal, neurological, metabolic, endocrine, and airway management implications. Finally, we'll apply the concepts learned in a clinical case. Let's start with the basics of diabetes. This is an endocrine disorder of insulin resistance or insulin deficiency, resulting in hyperglycemia. There are two types, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder in which the body attacks and destroys the insulin-producing beta cells of the pancreas. This accounts for about 5 to 10 of all people with diabetes and typically occurs before the age of 30. Type 2 diabetes is a disorder of insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes is often comorbid with other conditions such as hypertension, dyslipidemia, and obesity, the combination of which is known as metabolic syndrome. This accounts for the other 90 to 95 percent of people with diabetes and typically affects adults. However, it is becoming more common in children and adolescents. Sweet. Now that we've covered the essentials, let's move on to anesthetic considerations. We'll start with macrovascular complications, which affect the large vessels of the body. These include coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, and peripheral vascular disease. Type 2 diabetes is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. Patients with diabetes are at higher risk for atherosclerosis, heart failure, and adverse perioperative cardiac events. In fact, Diabetes or insulin dependence is a risk factor in many of the tools used to assess cardiac risk prior to non-cardiac surgery, such as the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, or the RCRI. We'll cover assessment of cardiac risk in a future episode, but let's touch on it briefly here. Perioperative cardiac risk includes adverse events such as myocardial injury, myocardial infarction, heart failure, arrhythmia, stroke, and death. All patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery should be assessed for risk of these adverse events to help weigh the risks and benefits of undergoing surgery. For example, patients with acute coronary syndrome may require management, such as coronary revascularization, before undergoing elective surgery. Assessing cardiac risk may influence the method of intraoperative monitoring, choice of anesthetic technique, and blood pressure targets. This can also help determine if the patient will require any additional post-operative monitoring, such as an ECG, troponin, or continuous cardiac monitoring. Other macrovascular complications include an elevated risk of stroke, as well as peripheral vascular disease which causes poor blood flow to the extremities, resulting in claudication, ulcers, and gangrene. Chronic ischemia can manifest as non-healing wounds, which may eventually require revascularization or amputation. Diabetes is also commonly comorbid with hypertension, which has a large impact on the adverse outcomes associated with the disease. Next, we'll talk about the microvascular complications of diabetes. These include diabetic nephropathy, retinopathy, and neuropathy. Let's start with diabetic nephropathy. 
Diabetes, along with hypertension, is a leading cause of chronic kidney disease. The KDIGO criteria can be used to stage the severity of chronic kidney disease. These criteria are based on a patient's estimated glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, and the severity of a patient's albuminuria. A normal GFR is around 100 to 120 milliliters per minute. Those with a GFR less than 10 are dependent on renal replacement therapy, such as hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis, to survive. Fortunately, the kidneys have a great deal of functional reserve. Patients can be asymptomatic even with a GFR of 40. That being said, many anesthetic drugs, including rocuronium and fentanyl, are renally excreted. It's especially important to consider that some drugs, such as morphine and hydromorphone, can have metabolites which may build up to toxic levels in chronic kidney disease. For patients with reduced kidney function, it's very important to try to preserve the remaining kidney function and reduce the risk of perioperative acute kidney injury. This can be optimized by maintaining good renal perfusion and being mindful of the use of nephrotoxic agents such as NSAIDs and ACE inhibitors. However, when it comes to caring for a patient with end-stage renal disease, there are many anesthetic considerations to keep in mind. We'll give a brief overview of some of these, but this is by no means a complete discussion. So hold on to your hats and let's dive in. Patients often have metabolic and electrolyte abnormalities, such as hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hypocalcemia. The kidneys are also less able to excrete acids, which can result in an anion gap metabolic acidosis. There is a tendency towards salt and water retention, leading to volume overload. Uremia is another condition to keep an eye out for. Uremia is a buildup of toxins in the blood commonly associated with end-stage renal disease. There are many potential manifestations, including nausea and vomiting, bleeding, pericarditis, and encephalopathy. From a hematologic perspective, patients may have chronic anemia due to reduced production of erythropoietin. They may also have impaired platelet and white blood cell function. From a cardiac perspective, patients with chronic kidney disease experience neurohormonal dysregulation and accumulation of uremic toxins, which can lead to left ventricular dysfunction and congestive heart failure. Salt and water retention can lead to hypertension, increasing ventricular afterload. Remember the revised cardiac risk index from our earlier discussion on the cardiovascular implications of diabetes? Chronic kidney disease is also a risk factor for perioperative cardiac adverse events. Patients with end-stage renal disease may be dependent on renal replacement therapy, which helps manage some of the complications we've talked about. In the perioperative setting, patients often undergo a dialysis session, either on the day of or the day before surgery, to optimize their volume status. Thus, the timing of the surgery relative to the last dialysis session can influence the patient's fluid and electrolyte status and their perioperative cardiac risk. In patients with end-stage renal disease, consider placing an arterial line for intraoperative monitoring and blood work, and keep an eye on the ECG for signs of hyperkalemia, such as peaked T waves, prolonged PR intervals, or a widened QRS complex. In patients who undergo hemodialysis, be mindful of the location of their dialysis fistula. Generally, we avoid placing IV lines on the arm with the fistula. In addition, a blood pressure cuff should not be placed on that arm due to the risk of thrombosis. Wow, that was a lot related to the kidneys. Okay, let's move on to diabetic neuropathy. Two major manifestations include peripheral neuropathy and autonomic neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy results in progressive loss of sensation in the distal extremities and may be accompanied by neuropathic pain. 
It is important to examine and document patients' chronic pain and review their pain medications because this can greatly impact their perioperative requirements for opioids and non-opiate analgesia. Autonomic neuropathy can affect many organ systems. Cardiovascular manifestations include resting tachycardia and orthostatic hypotension, and patients can have hemodynamic instability intraoperatively. Gastrointestinal autonomic neuropathy can manifest as delayed gastric emptying or gastroesophageal reflux disease, which can increase the risk of aspiration. This may require you to consider a rapid sequence induction, or an RSI, during a general anesthetic. Finally, let's discuss airway management in these patients. Patients with diabetes can have features of a difficult bag mask ventilation and laryngoscopy due to concurrent obesity, which may present with large amounts of neck tissue and fat. In long-standing diabetes, patients may also have limited C-spine and TMJ mobility, again increasing the difficulty of direct laryngoscopy. Great, you made it. That was a lot of information to filter through. Now let's apply some of these concepts in a clinical case. Your patient is a 52-year-old male with non-insulin dependent type 2 diabetes, presenting for an open inguinal hernia repair. He has never had surgery in the past. Past medical history is otherwise significant for hypotension and obesity with a BMI of 32. His medications include metformin, empagliflozin, and ramipril. He has no allergies. He reports that his last meal was 10 hours ago, and his last drink was a few sips of water three hours ago. However, on review of systems, you discover that he has significant heartburn and reflux that occur hours after a meal and is especially severe when supine. He also reports a history of early satiety and occasional nausea and vomiting of partially digested food. He mentions that his family doctor told him that he had delayed digestion due to his diabetes. On exam, he is a malampati 2 and has normal thiomental distance and mandibular protrusion. However, his mouth opening is less than 3 cm and his neck extension appears to be somewhat limited. His cardiorespiratory exam is normal. What is your airway management plan? Based on the history, this patient likely has diabetic gastroparesis due to diabetic autonomic neuropathy. Although he has observed an appropriate fasting period, it is still possible that there is still significant volume of undigested contents in his stomach. There are several things we can do here to reduce the risk of aspiration. Preoperatively, we can give the patient pre-medication. We can use proton pump inhibitors such as pantoprazole or H2 antagonists such as ranitidine. We can also give the patient a non-particulate antacid such as sodium citrate. These agents reduce the acidity of stomach contents, which may help reduce lung damage if the patient does aspirate. We can also give gastric motility agents, such as metoclopramide, to speed gastric emptying, which is particularly helpful for patients with gastroparesis. We can also modify components of our intraoperative plan. Open inguinal hernia repairs can often be done under general anesthesia with a supraglottic airway. However, First-generation supraglottic airways do not provide adequate protection against aspiration. In this case, we could consider a rapid sequence induction with an endotracheal tube. A cuffed endotracheal tube, which seals off the airway, is the best way to protect against aspiration. In this case, you decide to pre-medicate the patient with pantoprazole, metoclopramide, and sodium citrate. The patient undergoes a rapid sequence induction with an endotracheal tube. The surgery is uneventful and the patient is safely extubated and transported to PACU. Great work, everyone. That was a lot of physiology. Here are some take-home points from our episode on diabetes. Cardiovascular considerations include the concurrent likelihood of hypertension, 
atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, and even heart failure. Renal considerations include varying degrees of kidney dysfunction. Reducing the risk of perioperative kidney injury is of great importance and can be achieved by maintaining normal volume status and avoiding nephrotoxic meds, as well as considering which anesthetic drugs are renally excreted. End-stage renal disease has many complications, such as metabolic acidosis, electrolyte abnormalities, volume overload, and uremia. Additionally, if the patient has a dialysis fistula, that limb is generally off-limits for IV access and non-invasive blood pressure monitoring. Hematologic considerations include chronic anemia, platelet dysfunction, and impaired immunity. Neurologic considerations include the presence of peripheral and autonomic neuropathy, the latter of which can increase the risk of aspiration if there is GI involvement. Patients may be difficult airways due to obesity and decreased cervical spine and temporomandibular joint mobility. It's a lot to take in, but remember, your goal is to determine which end organ manifestations are present, evaluate the severity of the dysfunction, and create a management plan based on your findings. And that concludes this podcast episode. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you learned today to your clinical rotations. This episode was written by our very own Raven. We would like to thank our content editors, Dr. Pru Panchal, Dr. Grace Martin, and Dr. Amanda Whitby. And a big thanks to Dr. Cordovani and Dr. Whitby for their continued support. Also, make sure to check out our new website on the McMaster Department of Anesthesia webpage. Tweet at us at Airwave Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Airwave Podcasts for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.